Section 6 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Felicity Campbell. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b section six chapter twelve part six without regard to his oaths and subscriptions that enterprising conspirator directed his two sons richard and peter de mountfort in conjunction with robert de ferrers earl of derby to attack the city of worcester while henry and simon de mountfort two others of his sons assisted by the prince of wales were ordered to lay waste the estate of roger de mortimer he himself resided at london and employing as his instrument fitz richard the seditious mayor who had violently and illegally prolonged his authority he wrought up that city to the highest ferment and agitation the populace formed themselves into bands and companies chose leaders practised all military exercises committed violence on the royalists and to give them greater countenance in their disorders an association was entered into between the city and eighteen great barons never to make peace with the king but by common consent and approbation at the head of those who swore to maintain this association were the earls of leicester gloucester and derby with Lord spencer the chief justiciary men who had all previously sworn to submit to the award of the french monarch their only pretence for this breach of faith was that the latter part of lewis's sentence was as they affirmed a contradiction to the former he ratified the charter of liberties yet annulled the provisions of oxford which were only calculated as they maintained to preserve that charter and without which in their estimation they had no security for its observance the king and prince finding a civil war inevitable prepared themselves for defence and summoning the military vassals from all quarters and being reinforced by balliol lord of galloway bruce lord of annandale henry percy john common and other barons of the north they composed an army formidable as well from its numbers as its military prowess and experience the first enterprise of the royalists was the attack of northampton which was defended by simon de mountfort with many of the principal barons of that party, and a breach being made in the walls by Philip Bassett, the place was carried by assault, and both the governor and the garrison were made prisoners. The royalists marched thence to Leicester and Nottingham, both which places, having opened their gates to them, Prince Edward proceeded with a detachment into the county of Derby, in order to ravage with fire and sword the lands of the earl of that name, and take revenge on him for his disloyalty. Like maxims of war prevailed with both parties throughout England, and the kingdom was thus exposed in a moment to greater devastation from the animosities of the rival barons than it would have suffered from many years of foreign or even domestic hostilities conducted by more humane and more generous principles the earl of leicester master of london and of the counties in the south-east of england formed the siege of rochester which alone declared for the king in those parts 
and which, besides Earl Warren, the governor, was garrisoned by many noble and powerful barons of the royal party. The king and prince hastened from Nottingham, where they were then quartered, to the relief of the place, and on their approach Leicester raised the siege and retreated to London, which being the centre of his power, he was afraid might, in his absence, fall into the king's hands, either by force or by a correspondence with the principal citizens, who were all secretly inclined to the royal cause. Reinforced by a great body of Londoners, and having summoned his partisans from all quarters, he thought himself strong enough to hazard a general battle with the royalists, and to determine the fate of the nation in one great engagement which, if it proved successful, must be decisive against the king, who had no retreat for his broken troops in those parts, while Leicester himself, in case of any sinister accident, could easily take shelter in the city. To give the better colouring to his cause, he previously sent a message with conditions of peace to Henry, submissive in the language, but exorbitant in the demands, and when the messenger returned with the lie and defiance from the king, the prince and the king of the Romans, he sent a new message, renouncing in the name of himself and of the associated barons all fealty and allegiance to Henry. He then marched out of the city with his army, divided into four bodies. The first commanded by his two sons, Henry and Guy de Mountfort, together with Humphrey de Bowen, Earl of Hereford, who had deserted to the barons. The second, led by the Earl of Gloucester, with William de Montchesney and John Fitzjohn. The third, composed of Londoners, under the command of Nicholas de Seagrave. The fourth, headed by himself in person. The Bishop of Chichester gave a general absolution to the army, accompanied with assurances that, if any of them fell in the ensuing action, they would infallibly be received into heaven as the reward of their suffering in so meritorious a cause. Leicester, who possessed great talents for war, conducted his march with such skill and secrecy that he had well nigh surprised the royalists in their quarters at Lewis in Sussex, but the vigilance and activity of Prince Edward soon repaired this negligence, and he led out the king's army to the field in three bodies. He himself conducted the van, attended by Earl Warren and William de Valence. The main body was commanded by the king of the Romans and his son Henry. The king himself was placed in the rear at the head of his principal nobility. Prince Edward rushed upon the Londoners, who had demanded the post of honour in leading the rebel army, but who, from their ignorance of discipline and want of experience, were ill-fitted to resist the gentry and military men of whom the prince's body was composed. They were broken in an instant, were chased off the field, and Edward, transported by his martial ardour, and eager to revenge the incidents of the Londoners against his mother, put them to the sword for the length of four miles, without giving them any quarter, and without reflecting on the fate which in the meantime attended the rest of the army. The Earl of Leicester, seeing the royalists thrown into confusion by their eagerness in the pursuit, led on his remaining troops against the bodies commanded by the two royal brothers. He defeated with great slaughter the forces headed by the king of the Romans, and that prince was obliged to yield himself prisoner to the Earl of Gloucester. He penetrated to the body where the king himself was placed, threw it into disorder, pursued his advantage, 
chased it into the town of Lewis, and obliged Henry to surrender himself prisoner. Prince Edward, returning to the field of battle from his precipitate pursuit of the Londoners, was astonished to find it covered with the dead bodies of his friends, and still more to hear that his father and uncle were defeated and taken prisoners, and that Arundel, Common, Bruce, Hammond, Lestrange, Roger Laybourne, and many considerable barons of his party were in the hands of the victorious enemy. Earl Warren, Hugh Bygod, and William de Valence, struck with despair at this event, immediately took to flight, hurried to Bevency, and made their escape beyond sea. But the prince, intrepid amidst the greatest disasters, exhorted his troops to revenge the death of their friends, to relieve the royal captives, and to snatch an easy conquest from an enemy disordered by their own victory. He found his followers intimidated by their situation, while Leicester, afraid of a sudden and violent blow from the prince, amused him by a feigned negotiation, till he was able to recall his troops from the pursuit and to bring them into order. There now appeared no further resource to the royal party, surrounded by the armies and garrisons of the enemy, destitute of forage and provisions, and deprived of their sovereign, as well as of their principal leaders, who could alone inspirit them to an obstinate resistance. The prince, therefore, was obliged to submit to Leicester's terms, which were short and severe, agreeably to the suddenness and necessity of the situation. He stipulated that he and Henry Dalmain should surrender themselves prisoners as pledges in lieu of the two kings, that all other prisoners on both sides should be released, and that in order to settle fully the terms of agreement, application should be made to the king of France, that he should name six Frenchmen, three prelates, and three noblemen, these six to choose two others of their own country, and these two to choose one Englishman, who, in conjunction with themselves, were to be invested by both parties with full powers to make what regulations they thought proper for the settlement of the kingdom. The prince and young Henry accordingly delivered themselves into Leicester's hands, who sent them under a guard to Dover Castle. Such are the terms of agreement, commonly called the Mise of Lues, from an obsolete French term of that meaning for it appears that all the gentry and nobility of England, who valued themselves on their Norman extraction, and who disdained the language of their native country, made familiar use of the French tongue till this period, and for some time after. Leicester had no sooner obtained this great advantage, and gotten the whole royal family in his power, than he openly violated every article of the treaty and acted as sole master and even tyrant of the kingdom. He still detained the king, in effect a prisoner, and made use of that prince's authority to purposes the most prejudicial to his interests, and the most oppressive of his people. He everywhere disarmed the royalists, and kept all his own partisans in a military posture. He observed the same partial conduct in the deliverance of the captives, and even threw many of the royalists into prison, besides those who were taken in the battle of lewis he carried the king from place to place and obliged all the royal castles on pretence of henry's commands to receive a governor and garrison of his own appointment all the officers of the crown and of the household were named by him and the whole authority as well as arms of the state was lodged in his hands he instituted in the counties a new kind of magistracy 
endowed with new and arbitrary powers, that of conservators of the peace. His avarice appeared bare-faced, and might induce us to question the greatness of his ambition, at least the largeness of his mind, if we had not reason to think that he intended to employ his acquisitions as the instruments for attaining further power and grandeur. He seized the estates of no less than eighteen barons as his share of the spoil gained in the Battle of Lewis. He engrossed to himself the ransom of all the prisoners, and told his barons, with a wanton insolence, that it was sufficient for them that he had saved them by that victory from the forfeitures and attainders which hung over them. He even treated the Earl of Gloucester in the same injurious manner, and applied to his own use the ransom of the King of the Romans, who, in the field of battle, had yielded himself prisoner to that nobleman. Henry, his eldest son, made a monopoly of all the wool in the kingdom, the only valuable commodity for foreign markets which it at that time produced. The inhabitants of the sink ports, during the present dissolution of government, betook themselves to the most licentious piracy, preyed on the ships of all nations, threw the mariners into the sea, and by these practices soon banished all merchants from the English coasts and harbours. Every foreign commodity rose to an exorbitant price, and woollen cloth, which the English had not then the art of dyeing, was worn by them white, and without receiving the last hand of the manufacturer. In answer to the complaints which arose on this occasion, Leicester replied that the kingdom could well enough subsist within itself, and needed no intercourse with foreigners. And it was found that he even combined with the pirates of the sink ports, and received as his share the third of their prizes. No further mention was made of the reference to the King of France, so essential an article in the agreement of Lewis, and Leicester summoned a parliament, composed altogether of his own partisans, in order to rivet by their authority that power which he had acquired by so much violence, and which he used with so much tyranny and injustice. An ordinance was there passed, to which the king's consent had been previously extorted, that every act of royal power should be exercised by a council of nine persons, who were to be chosen and removed by the majority of three, Leicester himself, the Earl of Gloucester, and the Bishop of Chichester. By this intricate plan of government, the sceptre was really put into Leicester's hands, as he had the entire direction of the Bishop of Chichester, and thereby commanded all the resolutions of the Council of Three, who could appoint or discard at pleasure every member of the Supreme Council. But it was impossible that things could long remain in this strange situation. It behoved Leicester either to descend with some peril into the rank of a subject, or to mount up with no less into that of a sovereign. And his ambition, unrestrained either by fear or by principle, gave too much reason to suspect him of the latter intention. Meanwhile, he was exposed to anxiety from every quarter, and felt that the smallest incident was capable of overturning that immense and ill-cemented fabric which he had reared. The queen, whom her husband had left abroad, had collected in foreign parts an army of desperate adventurers, and had assembled a great number of ships, with a view of invading the kingdom, and of bringing relief to her unfortunate family. Lewis, detesting Leicester's usurpations and perjuries, and disgusted at the English barons who had refused to submit to his award, secretly favoured all her enterprises, and was generally believed to be making preparations for the same purpose. 
an english army by the pretended authority of the captive king was assembled on the sea-coast to oppose this projected invasion but leicester owed his safety more to cross winds which long detained and at last dispersed and ruined the queen's fleet than to any resistance which in their present situation could have been expected from the english leicester found himself better able to resist the spiritual thunders which were levelled against him the pope still adhering to the king's cause against the barons dispatched cardinal guido as his legate into england with orders to excommunicate by name the three earls leicester gloucester and norfolk and all others in general who concurred in the oppression and captivity of their sovereign leicester menaced the legate with death if he set foot within the kingdom but guido meeting in france the bishops of winchester london and worcester who had been sent thither on a negotiation commanded them under the penalty of ecclesiastical censures to carry his bull into england and to publish it against the barons when the prelates arrived off the coast they were boarded by the piratical mariners of the cinque ports to whom probably they gave a hint of the cargo which they brought along with them the bull was torn and thrown into the sea which furnished the artful prelates with a plausible excuse for not obeying the orders of the legate leicester appealed from guido to the pope in person but before the ambassadors appointed to defend his cause could reach rome the pope was dead and they found the legate himself from whom they had appealed seated on the papal throne by the name of urban the fourth that daring leader was nowise dismayed with this incident and as he found that a great part of his popularity in england was founded on his opposition to the court of rome which was now become odious he persisted with the more obstinacy in the prosecution of his measures that he might both increase and turn to advantage his popularity leicester summoned a new parliament in london where he knew his power was uncontrollable and he fixed this assembly on a more democratical basis than any which had ever been summoned since the foundation of the monarchy besides the barons of his own party and several ecclesiastics who were not immediate tenants of the crown he ordered returns to be made of two knights from each shire and what is more remarkable of deputies from the boroughs an order of men which in former ages had always been regarded as too mean to enjoy a place in the national councils this period is commonly esteemed the epoch of the house of commons in england and it is certainly the first time that historians speak of any representative sent to parliament by the boroughs and even in the most particular narratives delivered of parliamentary transactions as in the trial of thomas a becket where the events of each day and almost of each hour are carefully recorded by contemporary authors there is not throughout the whole the least appearance of a house of commons in all the general accounts given in preceding times of those assemblies the prelates and barons only are mentioned as the constituent members but though that house derived its existence from so precarious and even so invidious an origin as leicester's usurpation it soon proved when summoned by the legal princes one of the most useful and in process of time one of the most powerful members of the national constitution and gradually rescued the kingdom from aristocratical as well as from regal tyranny 
But Leicester's policy, if we must ascribe to him so great a blessing, only forwarded by some years an institution for which the general state of things had already prepared the nation, and it is otherwise inconceivable that a plant set by so inauspicious a hand could have attained to so vigorous a growth, and have flourished in the midst of such tempest and convulsions. The feudal system, with which the liberty much more the power of the commons was totally incompatible, began gradually to decline, and both the king and the commonalty, who felt its inconveniencies, contributed to favour this new power, which was more submissive than the barons to the regular authority of the crown, and at the same time afforded protection to the inferior orders of the state. End of section 6, chapter 12, part 6. Recording by Felicity Campbell, book1forme.com, Whanganui, New Zealand.